Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast with Calvin and David. This week's program is about Darren Aronofsky's 2008 film, The Wrestler. We'll also have a look at your weekend box office. Enjoy the show. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, welcome back. How are you doing this week, Calvin? Doing pretty good. Uh, before we go into this week's show, uh, we have some interesting site content. Uh, you wrote a list of the defining westerns. Yeah, the, the was it the ten greatest westerns in the order in which to watch them. It's a it's a list with a twist. And we're only about a month in here, but it's really blown up the site. I just wanted to see if you could give some background and maybe incentive to go read that. Sure, I'll talk about it a little bit. So I wrote this list after having watched. Um, the Searchers and Unforgiven at one point, and not really understanding them the first time. I wasn't a big fan of them then. But, upon watching more westerns, and then revisiting these two later on down the road, I realized how great they were, and how introspective they were on the own, their own genre. The Searchers is actually now one of my five favorite films of all time, for you know many of those reasons. So I thought, anyone else who wants to learn about the western genre should really have some kind of guide, because you can't just start with these big revisionist westerns. And so I sat down and thought about what I thought the best, most defining Western films are. And I made a list recommending how you should watch them and kind of how explaining how the genre evolved over time. It's a very lovingly written list, and I'm so glad to see it's doing amazingly well. Yeah, I think it's gone beyond any of our expectations for how it would perform, but we're all very happy with it. And uh, I feel like the list is reaching its full potential, so definitely go check that out on the site. Um, This week we also have a review of Cam. The Netflix horror film. Yeah, uh, Cam is an interesting pick you saw earlier this week, and you provided an interesting insight to it. I yeah, the author of the film was also a Cam girl herself, so it has a authenticity and a kind of sexiness to it, but it never exploits the sex for um, to make the character any worse. It's all empowering for her, but maybe it empowers mm-hmm. her too much, and she gets hooked on the uh, social media hooks of the website. That's interesting, and we'll have a lot more coming up this week, and first we'll talk about, as we get into our podcast here, before we get to our featured film, we'll talk about the uh, box office. You ready to look at what happened this weekend? Absolutely. Alright, so at number 10, we have Green Book. I just went and saw Green Book. It's it's kind of a reverse driving Miss Daisy, where, uh, you know, back in those days, the black people would have to go through a book and find the motels and the places they could stay, so... They get uh, Vigo Morrison um, as like this white cab driver with kind of southern manners. Uh, he's just a gritty Italian guy. And, um, well, this black man kind of teaches him everything he needs to know about, like uh, being s- socialized. And it's kind of that reverse flip that's really enjoyable. It's Peter Far- Farley. Uh, I-, I really enjoyed it, but I think the Internet's going to tear it apart for social reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I saw a little bit of buzz on it on Twitter this week, but uh, actually it was more positive than I saw negative. Uh, William Friedkin, I saw, endorsed the film on Twitter. Oh, he really? said it's one of his favorites. Yeah, one of his favorites of 2018 so far. He's talked about it a little bit, um, and the kind of the race elements and play on it, and how that controversy is sort of there, but, you know, it's not what's going on in the film. I don't think it's what the film's so much about. I mean, it's a bonding film, right? Um, and I, I think it's... It won over uh, festivals. It's going to be a crowd pleaser. I'm glad it's in there a couple of weeks, but I think the internet will find that um, 
there are parts like, why does the black guy never interface with the book himself? I could see that he's distancing himself from the race, and, you know, he's like this famous pianist, and so it's music, it has some musical hooks too, and a good, uh, um, big Christmas moments to finish it off. So I recommend That's nice it for the, for holidays. the holiday too. Yeah, uh, I see it's a bio- biography as well. It says here on IMDb. You think it's going to have some Oscar buzz potentially? I think potentially that's what it's made for. Uh, I don't see another reason to go make this movie. So I think that uh, it it's going to find some nomination there. Hmm. I mean, interesting. All right. Moving on at number nine, we have Widows still hanging on in the ten. There, I'm glad to see it's still around. But man, that's low. Yeah, go check out the site. I have a glowing review of it. I loved Widows. Um, one of the strongest ensemble casts of the year. Maybe the strongest. So I'm mm-hmm. all behind it. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of discussion about it. I've seen some people are are disappointed by the fact that Steve McQueen is turning to a more, I guess, a simplistic or less complex kind of film with going into this kind of more straightforward heist. But from what I understand as well is that there's plenty of um, elements of social commentary going on in the film as well. It seems... Uh, irresponsible to dismiss everything that the film is trying to say. Yeah, I think there's so much going on in it, and uh, it's an important film about... uh, I I did worry about this when it was coming out, that it is centered around a black female lead, and those don't always perform in the box office, but I really wish this one did. Well, hopefully we can get more people to go out and see it, or at least it'll have some life on Vaughn when that comes around. I think that'll be a thing. It blows up once it comes to video. Please make it happen. Yeah. All right, at number eight, we have uh, the latest uh, attempt at a Robin Hood story. Oh, my God. I haven't gone and seen it yet. Uh, I'm Uh, avoiding it. I don't blame you. You know, everything I've seen about it is, you know, pretty awful. Like, worst film of the year kind of reviews going around. I mean, I'm I'm not a huge Robin Hood fan to begin with but even just telling from the trailers i'm like oh man this is not look any bit decent i mean even my favorite robin hood like the disney version is just a a lot of traced over scenes from better disney movies it's not like a, i have a real significant robin hood memory so i wish they'd stop making so many of them I remember seeing some of those clips, those like comparison clips where they show mm-hmm. you like the the dance scenes from the Jungle Book or whatever, how exact lines up match right ex- exactly. And I remember just like my childhood being destroyed in that instant, like the illusion <laughs> was gone. <laughs> yeah, it was like all my good memories were being slowly drifted away. And and that's a very good parallel to this Robin Hood as well. Yeah. All of your your dreams being shattered. So if you want your dreams destroyed, that's a good pick this week. Hmm. All right, at number seven, we have uh, the only new release on the 10 this year, uh, this week, which is The Possession of Hannah Grace. And I don't know a whole lot about this one yet. I haven't got to make it out to the theater, but I want to say that there were almost no new releases this week, so this might have been your only option. We're kind of in an yeah. in-betweener week between superheroes and the Thanksgiving films, so... Well, we've had a lot of really great horror stuff this year. Horror's really coming back in full swing, but these Possession films seem to still not do so well. Looking at the the ratings on on IMDb here as well, like this looks really like bottom of the barrel. Like you're gonna pick this up out of a Walmart bin in a couple months. Yeah, I feel like it's one I'm gonna get on video on demand when it's just like a late night and uh, you know, one to watch with the fiance over popcorn or something. Yeah, well, you know, it's another one of those, you know, uh, done-out possession films. Essentially, everything done since, you know, Friedkin, uh, look, he's popping up again. Yeah. Uh, Friedkin's The Exorcist just doesn't matter. It's not going to measure up to 
what's going on there. It's all going to feel, um, you know, played out. Yeah, and uh, I might I might eventually get out to it, but uh, I feel like there's uh, some better stuff co- coming that sounds pretty much the same, like The Curse of La Llorona uh, next year. Uh, so there's a few other options upcoming. But we had an incredible mm-hmm. year at Horror, so if this is the yeah. last note, that's fine. Yeah, so... Not too great, but we'll see how it plays out. I doubt it'll stay in the top ten by next week. No. All right. At number six, we have Instant Family. It's that new Christmassy thing, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel so disappointed in the box office and everyone going to see movies. Um, so this one's just another film about white families saving uh, colored children. I don't really appreciate that. Uh, that that's the only way that people can be framed that uh you know i just don't think it's that positive no it, it sounds exploitative if anything yeah i'm i'm kind of done with the uh, mark Wahlberg for this year between mile 22 and this it's just uh make something mile 22 else this year yeah damn it has been a long year <laughs> yeah when you start thinking about what actually came out early this year that was only in the summer too was it? Oh my god, I would have thought like February or something. It's like mid-August that that came out. Yeah, I don't Jesus. know, you said you're done with Mark Wahlberg for this year, but I've been done with him for some years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, how many how many good movies has Mark Wahlberg actually made? What was the last you know? good one? Maybe like The Fighter? Um... Yeah, I'm guessing Jeez. that would have been... Like, I'm thinking back all the way to The Departed. Maybe not that far, but... Yeah, Departed, then... Lone Survivor was good, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's not give him any more attention. <laughs> okay, we're done with All right. Mark Wahlberg. So moving on to the top five. Uh, number five, we've got Bohemian Rhapsody here. This film's been around for uh, quite some time now. We've talked about it in great depth, at least our perceptions of it. I haven't gone to see it yet. My mom went and saw it, though. She liked it. She did. It didn't surprise me. It, I, it did surprise me that all of... Well, not really, that all my Facebook friends that aren't into films love this movie, and all the ones that are don't really care for it. Hmm. There's definitely that divide between the, the two types there. If you're not a huge movie person, I don't know what you're doing listening to this movie podcast, but, you know, then you'll probably love Bohemian Rhapsody. And in case anyone in charge wasn't listening last week, we'd like Sasha Baron to play both David Bowie's role and Freddie Mercury, so someone make that happen. In, in, yeah, it's in an under-pressure biopic. Yeah. Let's see that. Yeah. That would be the sequel to Bohemian Rhapsody, Take the Next Best Song. That's why they left it out, right? They gotta do it. Yeah, yeah it was sequel bait. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Alright, so number four, uh, speaking of sequel bait, we have Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, still haven't seen it, not going to see it um, for a while. Mm-hmm. I've seen more and more articles lately actually talking about uh, J.K. Rowling and her role as a screenwriter which is, um, you know, kind of the interesting takeaway from this. Like, honestly, the Fantastic Beasts series seems more like an interesting exercise in how deep of a hole J.K. Rowling can dig trying to, you know, make as much money as possible before everyone just kind of gives up. And I heard that everything about it is kind of like setting up for another sequel, so I'm, I'm already exhausted. We're only two movies in. Mm-hmm. It's not like you got Alfonso Caron coming in and making a Fantastic Beast movie. You're not going to save no. this franchise the same way you did with Potter. So. Well, I mean, Potter kind of glided off of the success of the first couple films there throughout the rest, I feel. And that's the thing, is that these Fantastic Beast films are still directed by David Yates, who did like the last four or five Harry Potter films. Maybe not five, because there's only eight, right? Three or so, maybe, I think. Last three four. or four, something like that. 
yeah. several. There was there was a certain amount. He definitely did like the last two Deathly Halls. I think maybe the two films before that. But anyway, he's done these two Fantastic Beasts films as well, and you don't sense any kind of directorial voice in his work. Like if you look at those last couple Harry Potter films, it doesn't feel like those first few. I kind of wish they had taken a more Mission Impossible kind of look at things and be yeah, like, really? you know, let's have a different artistic director take the helm every time. Yeah, wouldn't that have been more interesting? Um, I mean, I don't even like the first two Harry Potters. I I love the Corone movie, but um, that's really the only one I really enjoy as a film. I mean, I love the books, but who doesn't? All right. Well, looking forward, we have number three here. Creed 2 is still sitting high in the box office. Okay, uh, so I saw Creed 2 this week. Yes, I was talking about Creed 2, I suppose. I didn't see it, but... Um, well, Rocky 4 is one of my favorite Rocky movies, and I know that's unpopular opinion that it's just kind of like a you know overblown uh, 80s um propaganda kind of u.s versus russia what surprised me is this kind of took all the politics out of it because uh, i feel like there are a couple things you could draw on right now between u.s and russia i was gonna say yeah there's plenty of uh, stuff there this is probably the closest we've been to any kind of questionable relationship with russia since the 80s and it's kind of like the Cold War's warmed over a little bit, and it's kind of coming back our memories of what that was like, but now what's our relationship with Russia? And it doesn't touch on any of that, so the thing with Creed 2 is it uh, doesn't no longer has, um, what's his name, uh, uh, Kugler. Oh, Kugler. Uh, you yeah, Kugler. Yeah, sorry, it doesn't have Ryan Kugler writing the film anymore, so Sly took back the reins on that, and it reads like a Sly film. It has a more emphasis on the boxing. It's obvious that um, Stephen Capel Jr. is more interested in the boxing than the human elements, although he does some pretty interesting stuff with Tem Tessa Thompson, I guess, and Michael B. Jordan's always good. Uh, so it's still worth seeing. The boxing's excellent, but everything around it's a lot weaker. Mm. Um, I guess I should say that they really did tap into something emotional that, you know, Rocky Four couldn't find a montage for. So there's some pretty <laughs> cool stuff in there. Rocky Four is, like, mostly just a series of montages glued together into a film, isn't it? Yeah, I think it has some emotional manipulation. There, All the Rocky movies are a little bit manipulative, but, like, when his baby's yeah. born and she has, like, hearing problems and... Man, like, that was kind of tearing me up in the theater, but not for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, emotional manipulation is still good when used in the right context. I'll never forget the first time I watched the first Rocky film, because I felt on, on top of the world watching it. Never, you know, the, the theme song, when that comes in, that's some of the most powerful stuff I've seen in almost any film. It's just, it's motivating, and, you know, it gets pumped up and celebrating. Yeah, and I don't feel like I felt that there wasn't, there wasn't, Maybe it's a good thing not to be flying the American flag right now, but I think the Dragos or the um, yeah the Dragos are almost more sympathetic, and sometimes I felt that I was rooting for them, which is uh, not not what I expected at all coming out of this. That's odd. Do you feel like you came out overall positive on the film still? Because yeah. It sounds like a lot of yeah. I'm definitely I'm definitely positive, but I mean Creed's my favorite Rocky film. I think it's the best written film in the franchise. I think Kugler's a far better writer than Stallone, but I don't know, uh, I also don't feel like that's saying a whole lot, so it's just another step back toward being just a Rocky movie, instead of being a celebration of a new generation kind of taking the reins, so I think that's also the next movie's job. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll see where that goes, because certainly I'm sure they'll do a Creed 3. Because uh, Stallone said he's stepping out for now, and um, I, I don't think he'll ever fully step out, but that's what he says every time. Well, he's yeah, he's talked about stepping out from like the Rocky roles or the Rambo roles before, but he's doing those again, too, so... I don't know, he'll probably still be playing Rocky in his grave. Yeah, I think so. That's kind of what the film keeps going back to. Like, the last one was going back to Adrian's grave, and now we're going back to Creed's grave. And it's it's kind of like a... It's kind of burying the old memories. So I feel like it could go beyond that. I think Michael B. Jordan's a much better actor than Stallone also. Mm-hmm. Not too surprising, but we'll see how that goes, certainly. Mm-hmm. All right. So our top two, again, is the same as last week. Uh, I'm just going to kind of lump them here together. Uh, We got The Grinch and Ralph Breaks the Internet. We should say not exactly the same as last week. The Grinch moved up one, which is... Did it? I thought it was at uh, two. That's my bad. I think it was at three last week, which is uh, coming closer to Christmas is probably the only explanation for that. But I think we should focus on Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, uh, we've (sighs) talked about that a little bit. Jesus Christ. You went to go see Wreck-It Ralph, the yeah. new one. It's, it's actually not called Wreck-It Ralph, is it? I thought it was originally. Ralph but Breaks they the Internet. It's just, yeah, it's just Ralph Breaks the Internet. I guess they had a title change somewhere along production. I don't know. I didn't keep my eye on it too much after that first trailer, because I was turned off. It probably changed title the same time Disney made a soulless corporate mandate to take it out of video games and make it a, a advertisement for big internet companies. Ouch. Can you be a little harsher? <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, there's no soul at all in the film. It's constantly throwing logos at you. It's a reminder of everything that Disney owns and how big of a conglomerate they've become. Um, it's just a... I don't want my daughter exploring the internet yet. Uh, there's there's things that are... Um, well, I guess correction for last week. It only takes pl- place six years in the future. Uh, I think we missed up our dates last week a little bit well yeah i think we felt like it was an 80s film like i don't know if they ever explicitly stated in the first one when it takes place but with all the 80s you know games and paraphernalia around we should you know that's what it felt like but i mean we kind of overlooked the fact that there's a call of duty style (laughs) arcade game that kind of sets the plot in motion and one of the characters is a gears of war character so like there's you know, I think what we were trying to get at is it had the nostalgia and the feeling of the 80s. And this one actually does, we we're also wrong on that count, that it has video games in the first 10 minutes or so. Then what happens is the uh, cabinet for the Mario Kart clone breaks down. They have to go into the internet and try to purchase a steering wheel off of eBay. They call it eBoy because they don't know the internet. Um, and they call the new internet hub Wifey or Wifi because they don't know the internet. Um, there's not a lot of interesting stuff that happens in the film. There's more generic stand-ins for video games. Uh, a lot of the old characters from the last one just floating around in the background, not doing anything interesting. Uh, sometimes no, no, they... They don't bring over, like, um, Fix-It Felix or anything? He was one of my favorites. They, they don't bring over, like, Felix's character. I remember, you know, Jack McBrayer really sells that role in the first one. I enjoy him. I'd be surprised if they don't bring him over. Oh, yeah, he's in there. Sometimes they sit in on a root beer tapper hub, and he comes by, and they're, like, drinking their worries away in a huge glass of root beer. Uh, there's some there's some cute moments in it, actually. There's the scene with all the Disney princesses where Let It Glow blares over the speakers, and they enter, like, a, a land full of Disney things, but not Disneyland, and... Um, there's these stormtroopers chasing the, uh, Sarah Silverman's character around. Then she ends up in 
just this little room with all these Disney princesses, and it's like the most extreme brand representation I've ever seen from Disney. Mm-hmm. We got a, quite a bit of that in the trailer. Oh, it was at the second trailer, I believe, yeah, where you see all the princesses and their new 3D designs and everything, and they're all talking about what it means to be a princess, and it's like, ah, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, like uh, like Moana says, all you have to do is stare at important bodies of water. Um, I think that's more the takeaway that they're going to launch their own princess movie, which might be a lot more fun, and I'd be fine with my daughter seeing, but... There's no soul in Ralph Breaks the Internet. I, I well, hate it. Well, that's the thing is that, especially with that, that conversation with Princess, seems like far too cynical for Disney. Yeah. You know, and it and it just kind of sucks all the life out of it. I don't know. I don't have any interest in your review, but certainly confirm that for me. If anyone's interested to see what Calvin has to say, go check out his review on thetwingeeks.com. I think it's our lowest scoring review yet, so it's pretty scathing. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be, you know surprised if we find something lower but we will eventually i'm certain yeah we'll put up little italy one of these days yeah um, all right so something of a disappointing box office this week but hopefully we'll get some some interesting stuff coming in next week more discussion going on in the meantime let's move on to our featured film of the week which is Darren aronofsky's the wrestler Best ever. Guns and Roses. Crew. Yeah, then that Cobain had to come around and ruin it all. <laughs> 90 sucks. 90 sucks. These things that have comforted me, I drive away. My only faith's in the broken bones and bruises I display. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. I'm really here. Turns 10 years old in the coming weeks here yeah yeah that's right this month's the 10th anniversary came out 2008 uh, this is darren aronofsky's uh, it was one of the well i loved requiem for a dream right that heavy depressing kind of um kind of like an opiate trip of a film but this mm-hmm. one's more like a grounded one of the fear uh, first serious takes on professional wrestling in films right professional wrestling is certainly something of a of a joke among the world communities here. You know, we like to poke fun at it and how not real it is and whatnot, but the wrestler surprisingly pulls back the curtain quite a bit and shows how much is kind of real, and even if, you know, even the fakeness of it is still very sincere. It's about Randy the Ram, who's, uh, um, who was a popular wrestler throughout the 80s, and he's full of, you know, old man, um, kind of over-the-hill 80s uh, nostalgia but the way that he kind of conducts himself he's you know life's kind of passed him by and what we forget about professional wrestlers is what happens outside the ring that they're living usually very damaged lives after their careers mm-hmm. i think that was the one of the most interesting facets to me watching the film as well is that immediately up front nothing about this life is glamorous like i noticed like some of the curse like, like the first venue they're in is like at a school gymnasium is where they're having <laughs> yeah. this wrestling match and it's very obvious like he he's preparing in like this this preschool kindergarten room or whatever it is i'm like man that is a weird juxtaposition and it really conveys how kind of low this life really is mm-hmm. he gets locked out of his apartment soon afterwards for not being able to pay rent and has to sleep in his van and that's not the life of a you know professional wrestler as we saw you know the glamour right. is entirely not there I mean, mostly it's a it's a road career, but then there's these guys who are a little bit over the hill, and they get stuck into a local circuit where they're just like a, living out of a trailer. They're not the WWE glamour you usually get. I love the I love the opening uh, 
sequence kind of with all the uh, old magazine clips in it and mm -hmm. that gives a lot of uh, helpful context to the film you kind of get a little bit of an idea of the history of his character and whatnot and it all feels like in place like it doesn't feel like an exposition dump because it's all just supposed to be taken in visually you're not necessarily reading everything and uh, a lot of those old clips are from the uh, famous old wrestler uh, Lex Luger who's kind of modeled after between him and Hulk Hogan I'm sure there's a lot of uh, wrestlers who had an influence over the character of Randy the Ram and uh, you know Mickey Rourke really sells that character yeah holy and I mean like uh, some of the illusions are pretty obvious like he drives a ram truck right like there's there's right. some a ram truck and then he has a little figure of himself as a wrestler hanging off the windshield like there's a he's he's kind of bought into this world and kind of lives within the headspace of wrestling which is also like a dangerous um application of fantasy mhm mm certainly is you know this character who's supposedly invincible he you know he feels the need to to rise to that constantly and portray that even outside the ring when you know he's very much so not an invincible being who can endure anything i think uh we should talk a little bit about mickey rourke and how perfect he is for this film um we neither of us have seen a whole lot by him i mean i know rumblefish and i know barfly mm -hmm. i knew a couple of things from around the same time period like he did Sin City a little bit before this, and then just a little while after The Wrestler, he had a big role in... I had it a moment ago. Uh, Iron Man, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, I forgot about it because that's the shitty Iron Man movie. Right. <laughs> and uh, Mickey anyway. Rourke, uh, yeah, he's about the same as his character. Like He had a big run in the 80s, and then you know, 1991, he decided to go become a professional boxer for a little bit. So he kind of had the same series as the character throughout the film he'll say things like oh the 90s really sucked mm -hmm. they, they talk a little bit about how the 90s sucked and they shit on kurt cobain which is blasphemous it. but <laughs> it, you know i understand the sentiment the 90s looking back is not uh everything great i mean have you seen the fashion right yeah and uh, i get it for someone that was you know big and like the more like glamorous 80s how when you fall off in in this period it's you know what became popular changed. It's not like he changed as a person. Right. That seems to be a lot of the, the dealings with these characters who kind of are stuck in the past. That's definitely a kind of motif of the film, is that he's trying to continue living this life that he can't afford to anymore. You know, at a certain point, like, he, he gets injured and can no longer wrestle, but he still obviously longs for that life. It seems to be all he's known. Uh, I looked. At, I watched some clips of him uh, boxing. Actually, I, one of his most recent fights looks pretty staged. Uh, I did some more research on it. He was fighting a homeless guy. A homeless guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some homeless guy that actually went to his own gym. So maybe as a exchange, he wasn't homeless for a little bit and had a place to stay. But I think uh, I think it's a weird thing to do to try to line that up just to make you look a little bit better, like. He's not even, you know, it's the same as showman wrestling, right? A, a stage mm -hmm. boxing match. Right, that's, that's a little low. <laughs> and I think one thing to look at is how, like, choreographed wrestling is that, uh, that it plays well into a movie, and it's kind of surprising this is the only serious one, because uh, I guess we should also talk about um, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Yeah, I think that's a, a good comparison for this as well. Uh, that was made around the same time, I think, what, a couple of years after The Wrestler, yeah? Right, yeah, it came out a couple of years later. Um, 
They're framed basically the same way, a little bit of shaky documentary styling uh, around their personal life, and then more focused central performances around their uh, performative actions. Mm -hmm. And they are both a kind of sports film in their own way, and about, you know, characters trying to uh, get ahead in there, or I guess they're a little bit different in that sense, you know, because Black Swan is definitely more about, you know, getting that, that role and, you know, yeah, I think at, at that point in Black Swan, you know, Natalie Portman's coming off of her youth and she still hasn't landed that perfect role. Whereas, like, Mickey Rourke's coming off of being aged out of the business. So, in some way, they're both aging out, but the woman's aging is. That goes a little bit quicker for a ballet. Mm hmm. And um, they have a lot of the uh, similar uh, story beats, too, like the ending. Um, like, they both end in, like, a, you know, finalized kind of jump sequence. So. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, the, the one for the wrestler is a fantastic note to end on. I don't think there was any other way to end that. The um, ambiguous nature of it is exactly the kind of ending I want from this uh, story. Yeah, I mean, like, that, you know, that jump in that movie, as it's, like, pure Macho Man Randy Savage stuff. Uh, a lot of his moves are actually copied off him, and... Uh, one thing to say about the wrestling is it's all shot pretty close up. Like uh, when you watch WWE or something, it's you get the whole ring in the action. But this mm -hmm. this one you only get like Mickey Rourke. So it's really impossible to tell like what kind of stage presence he really has. I think I was thinking as well is that the cinematography in the ring is probably the best in the whole film. I really enjoyed that because it kind of shows everything from each perspective. The camera moves around the ring, mm -hmm. and I mean it obviously. Every single wrestling or boxing film, anything that involves a ring, has been highly influenced by Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull since he first started, you know, doing that, like with that film, and really changed how uh, boxing films are made. Because otherwise, you take a look back at anything earlier, like Rocky or whatever, and it's all inside or outside the ring, you know, just a full perspective of it. You'll get up maybe over the shoulder, but it's still, uh, uh, you know, a ejected from the ring itself it's still at a distance yeah i mean boxing films uh, pardon the pun but they're the perfect canvas for like a for a cinematic vision of a of a human struggle mm -hmm. oh, well, it took me a little bit of a second i was like canvas like painting oh no, 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 i realized yeah even, even the mat made of canvas yeah <laughs> but yes <laughs> sorry i ruined the joke i explained oh, it's fine it's fine I... anyway yeah, but, um, you know, um, wrestling films, obviously the parallel between that and a boxing film is, is pretty clear. They're very similar, but the wrestling, I think, is the interesting aspect of the, the more so performance side of things, you know. Mm -hmm. And you get to see a lot more of that, and that was a lot of what I appreciated watching The Wrestler, because they kind of have that pre-fight, um, you know, discussion about what exactly they're going to do, and they kind of decide the outcome and everything, but they, they play it all up. You know, and they have a good time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the other things is you get to see a little bit more of the show business side of uh, these behind-the-scenes show business, that they're all kind of friends, and they're like, uh, let's let's pull off this move. Um, I think in some way it's influenced one of my favorite TV shows right now, Glow. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. I haven't, but uh, my, my fiancé was talking a little bit about it. I've caught a couple times when I've come home from work and she's been watching it. She told me a lot about it, really enjoyed it. It... It kind of has the influence that uh, there are some actual wrestlers behind the scenes, like informing how those uh, how those industry uh, um, industry talk goes and how people perform and plan their um, wrestling. So mm -hmm. both of them have that strong correlation to the actual product. 
Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot of that. I think that's probably the most interesting aspects of The Wrestler overall is the actual kind of inside ideas. The The first half of the film was definitely more engaging, I thought, than perhaps the, the middle part. You know, mm-hmm. not, not that it wasn't engaging still, because Mickey Rourke's central performance and characters, you know, really the driving force of the whole thing, and never did I feel disengaged. But that was all the moments, like, when, you know, you see them all kind of planning things, and you see the actual fights themselves i was kind of like "Ooh, oh this is interesting oh, what's going on here you know mm. and i think that uh you said something like while we were watching the film we watched this one together that uh that you felt that the the characters were always drawn into their background that it always described something of them mm-hmm. i i definitely think that um you know you see a lot of each character and their personality there you know and you see the the high contrast with the actual stage personas that they, they kind of put on. I think that's one of the more interesting aspects as well, because you see how friendly these seemingly gruff and, you know, uh, impenetrable people are. It's not even till the end that we even get him in, like, an actual authentic-feeling ring. Like, he's he's just playing in, um, you know, like, ramshackle, like, uh, like, back, like, back portions of, like, uh, uh, kids' clubs and you know, yeah, he, that was like the interesting thing I said in the beginning one. You've got like it's obviously a school gymnasium, and then a later fight he has. I think it's the one where he gets like permanently injured. Is like it's obviously some kind of rental hall. Like there's a chandelier hanging <laughs> like, just outside of the ring, and I'm like, that is dangerous and bad. This is obviously not a real professional gig. It's like this is not planned for it. You know, so when you you do see him at the end, like the ending kind of feels very cathartic because it's like this is a real arena. This is his real shop. This is what he's going out on. You know, this is what he wants. This is his dream. Yeah, I should say, like, it is, in that sense, it's more like uh, ECW um, than, like, WWE. You know, there was, even, like, the prosthetic leg is taken from an old Tommy Dreamer stunt from ECW. So, I should say that. That was a fun moment. Yeah, it was. Like, uh, give him the leg. Give him the leg. Give him the leg. Yeah. Yeah. And he took the prosthetic leg and then hit the guy with it. That's fun. So that's like, like inspired the, by like a real actual thing that was unscripted and actually happened. Like that's the fun part of wrestling that, that you have a little bit of crowd, crowd involvement and you have to kind of improvise. Like it's a it's an improvisational art in some sense. Well, I think that's the thing as well that you see throughout the film with uh, Randy's character is that this is what drives him is the audience response. He's a hundred percent a performer, and you know that's the only place he really feels like he's at home where people actually celebrate him outside in the real world he's often kicked around or abused or you know just not even cared about even his daughter dismisses him (laughs) for the majority of the film yeah but i mean for for some reasons i mean he's obviously a a fuck up in ways outside of the ring you know it's definitely one of those character stories where like this is the only place that i'm good right and it has kind of that in common, too, with the the Black Swan, that it's about, like, familial disappointments and trying to escape into a different persona. Like, she becomes the Black Swan, he becomes the Ram, but, I mean, really, his name's Robin. Like, we see him at the store, they give mm-hmm. him the Robin name off his birth certificate, right? And he's right. so disappointed, but some of my favorite scenes are actually in that store, like, uh, how he's dealing with the older customers. and uh, Some of the earlier sequences in the store are unscripted and actual customers uh, that's kind of a fun part of the documentary style i think that's an interesting uh, part of the story as well like seeing him in the store is where a lot more of his character is revealed as well and how you know you, you really become endeared to him in ways despite his kind of gruff you know personality 
he's very nice with a lot of the customers, helping them out in any way he can. He's playing around. He tosses the guy the, the salad at one point. Yeah, he's like, go long for the salad. Um, I like the I like the point where he's going through like the grungy entrance into the store, and he stops right before entering, and you hear like the crowd erupting and do like a cheer, and then he kind of like settles into like his common workday. Mm-hmm. That's one of the probably the best moments. So, one thing in the film is that the the cinematography is very similar throughout. There's a lot of uh, handheld following shots behind him, like you know, just throughout the film, and the, like the first time you see it is when he walks into the ring and you got the music going, his theme song, and the crowd cheering and whatnot. So that moment where he they do the same thing when he's walking into work for the first day is makes for a great juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. But that's really the only time they do something like that. Like all of the other opportunities, you know, chances where they're following around just with the camera just feels like the same old thing. I wish there was a little bit more variety in the cinematography. It yeah. feels very simplistic. And I think I think for good reason that it's like mostly a character drama. I mean, you could I think it's open-ended enough to pull anything out of it, but it's still just a character study essentially. Yeah, it's it's a very simple film, you know, because of that. It it is just about the character, but it's very good at that because they had great casting and great acting. Yeah, I think that we should also talk that it's not just a Rick, Mickey Rourke film. I think a Marissa Tomei is probably the best in the film as Cassidy. Mm-hmm. She does a, a great job, which is good to say because I don't always like Marissa Tomei. No. But she does really good. Like She has an actual character to play. She has a good relationship and chemistry with Mickey Rourke mm-hmm. throughout the film. Yeah, I love that it turns things on the head. Like She's just barking at like the strip club and he goes in and there's like a feeling like, oh, he's going to proposition someone. Let's see his grady lifestyle. But he's like, you know, I just kind of want to hang out. I, I want you to come help me uh, pick some clothes for my daughter, uh, Stephanie. And we'll, uh, you know, go shopping together or whatever. You know, he's not, you know, their first scene together, of course, she gives him like a lap dance or whatever. That's the first thing she shot for the film. So, Right. Well, it's interesting because the lap dance during the scene, like he's not doing it to get a lap dance. He's right. doing it just to have time with her. He's like, I got to pay her to for a time so this is what she's gonna do yeah you know he's there just to talk and be with her because he's like his one real friend in the world yeah and i think it draws interesting parallels between him just like the ballet and the wrestling the stripping and the wrestling is staged the same like i mean they're essentially you know human meat put on a stage for like a some false relationship of pleasure Mm -hmm. they're both performing you know is the idea they're performing for an audience and using their their uh, physical skills to impress and amaze, you know, an audience. And that's very similar, you know, I think they might relate on that in some note, for sure. Did she win this year, or was she... I forget if she won the... won an award for that, but... I don't know if she was even nominated. Uh, She won... I mean, her Oscar is one of the weird ones, because she won for My Cousin Vinny, for some reason. Yeah, weird. It's a a weird one. I don't remember what was competing, but it's... (laughs) weird still <laughs> that is a strange thing because she was a uh, given nominee best performance by an actress in a supporting role okay that's so she didn't win but i thought she was really great in it at least as good as mickey Rourke. yeah mickey Rourke is certainly you know i i enjoyed him certainly the most but it was obviously the film was built around him so it's not a surprise and i think my favorite part between them is when they're going shopping for his daughter and She's like, uh, well, what is she? Is she a goth hippie prep? And he's like, uh, he, you know, he's looking for her validation, but he comes across a shirt with an S on it, like a giant S. He's like, well, you know, that 
that's good enough. That that's an S for her name. Yeah, and it's the funny thing. It shows kind of how out of touch he really is with <laughs> her interest. So when he does present it to her, she's obviously like, "Oh, yay! It's a shirt with an S on it." But it's one of those things where he, where she realizes like the sweet connection between him and his daughter, and that it would be the more personal gift, right? That there are those you know really touching kind of difficult moments with her, with her. Um, with him and his daughter that kind of stand out also. Mm-hmm. Those are uh, one, you know, some of the more interesting conflicts of the film because he does sincerely try to repair the, the broken bridge of their relationship. And, you know, at first she rejects him, like, insanely, like, straight out hating him. But eventually she kind of warms over and gives him a chance, but he ends up fucking up still. And he can't keep things straight. Uh, it was originally written that she would be going and making amends, like in a AA program or twelve step program. So, I kind of wish they had went that route because it would have made her character make a little bit more sense to me. Yeah, I think that would have rounded out her character more and kind of showing uh, the her decline since having you know a strange relationship with her strained relationship with her father. Yeah. Um. You know, it's very obvious that she's not having a good life right now. Like her whole demeanor and look just just screams that she's in a very bad position so having that more explicit element i think would have strengthened that and given even greater context to what's going on in her life and how her father's absence has really deeply affected her yeah i think it could have shown what you know i think that it was damaging to the family as well like we look at the wrestlers but also their families and the same with addicts that their families fall apart and it could have shown a little bit of his fall from grace if his daughter was having such a hard time. I, I feel like they could have really played heavily into that. Yeah, I guess it, you know, this would also, I guess, in turn make a good comparison to Requiem for a Dream and the fact that how this kind of wrestler lifestyle parallels that of a you know an addict in a way because mm. of how neglectful he's been, because of how consumed he is by it. You know, how he, you know, it ultimately, it's the only thing he feels satisfied by. And there isn't really, like, a redemption in the film because he goes right back into the wrestling. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of what those guys have to do because he doesn't belong anywhere else and it's what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly that. Um, you know, I don't know if there was ever meant to be a redemption anyway. I certainly didn't see it as such. But it's not like a, you know, you don't feel bad that he's going back into doing it. It feels kind of like the, the note to go out on. Like, this was the only choice for him in his life like you get that sense because of what what path he's paid for him like he's dug his own grave but it's not a bad thing necessarily Mm-mm. and i i really like the film i don't know if you were as high on it as i was while we were watching oh uh, yeah i mean I, like i'm not blown away by this but you know it is a very simple film you know it's not necessarily going to blow me away unless it really taps into something you know special there but it was thoroughly enjoyable very well executed um you know sometimes all you need is one really great performance at the center of a film to be really compelling and the wrestler really pulls that off i think with mickey Rourke, this is like a definitive film for him certainly and i think that uh well daronofsky said a few times that he was the definitive choice like it's like it's come around that like hulk hogan said that he was considered for the film but that was uh proven as a lie um uh sylvester salone was also chosen but uh he was doing kind of basically the same role in Rocky Balboa, so they thought Mickey Rourke had to be in it. He initially he did initially didn't even want to join, so it's interesting that he he had to rewrite some of his roles before he considered it. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting as well that uh, 
Sylvester Stallone would have been potentially cast because I can I can see that in my mind at least. Like I think back to the original Rocky at least and the kind of acting he displayed there and how that could translate to this character. But you know, it would take commitment. You know, that's the only thing with Stallone is that he he's got to really believe in a role, otherwise it's gonna suck. Yeah, I feel like it wouldn't be. Um, I feel like it wouldn't be a step up over. Rocky, Rocky Balboa for him. I mean, he is so ingrained in that character, and you know, just because this one's similar doesn't mean it has the same payoffs for him. Certainly, I mean, and, and that's not to say that this w- would be a similar thing. Like that's the other thing you'd risk as well as him playing it too Rocky esque. You know, mm. at least with Rourke, you get like you, you get the sense that this is his whole character, and it is strictly that. You know, I think Ricky Mickey Rourke does do perfectly in this role. I loved him in this for certain. Yeah, um, let's see. What else do we want to discuss here? Um, I think going back to the actual wrestling, I think we skipped over this a little bit. I want to talk about it at least. I remember one of the moments I was kind of shocked by in the film was when uh, he was preparing to go in the ring for like the first time. He put a razor blade into his, like, his armband. Oh, yeah. There. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Like, this isn't, I mean, this is supposed to be fake. Yeah. And, you know, and then he ends up, you know, when he's on the ground, he kind of sneaks it out. And he cuts himself across the forehead to make it, you know, a little more realistic looking and whatnot. And so it is still technically fake, like wrestling is meant to be, but that's real. You know, the blood is still real in it. They really go to the extreme to entertain. He actually cuts himself as well. That's one of the... That's like one, Mickey Rourke? Yeah, yeah. You mean? Yeah, he yeah, uses oh, the blade oh, and wow. physically cuts himself. Okay, see, that's taking even more to the extreme, I suppose, as well. Like, really method acting... It's weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And I feel like he does well, do some good method, method acting, but he's also basically playing himself throughout. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, well, you got that parallel with his life and his as well. Like, that's the thing is that this certainly isn't a stretch for acting for Mickey Rourke, but he does a really good job at portraying the immense loneliness and emptiness of the character that, you know, it really takes. That's a heavy thing to do still, even if the role itself is still at least in events-wise, similar to his own path. Yeah, and I think that, um, I think I think he does do a good job playing a little bit of a character, but I, I also kind of get sad thinking about the film. The, the more I reflect on it, that it's true to his life, that his life basically has passed him by, and he has only been able to be this kind of tough guy that uh, um, is kind of a difficult personality to even cast into a film. Right. I mean, certainly when... You, you've got a, a look like Mickey Rourke does. You get typecast into a lot of the same things. You know, it's you, you don't get a lot of interesting or different roles. Uh, what are you going you know, to be is, other than an over-the-hill boxer who's been punched a few too many times, you know? Right. Well, it's because of what he looks like, you know? Right. There's very few others. Like, even just looking in the past, I mean, years since then, you know, this role, what has he really done? That you can recall. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot that stands out to me. Like we both know, like uh, the basic beats, like Sin City, right? Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like he was in the Expendables as oh, well, yeah. and he was in yeah the the Sin City sequel. But it's all like big blockbustery stuff. I see he had a role in this uh, Danny Trejo movie. Danny Trejo basically does the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah, basically same thing every movie. It looks like I don't see yeah. anything that really stands out after this one. Right. It's a shame that, you know, he doesn't get to do anything else. You know, that I guess that just goes to show with Wallace that these 
you know, typecasting is still very prevalent in Hollywood, and it's very hard to avoid the kind of thing. But I guess we should also look through, like, a, that he was pretty much, you know, dead to Hollywood for, like, a decade. So just the fact that he even got a comeback film that was made, like, squarely for him as a star is kind of an exceptional, exceptional like, a kind of an exception for everyone else. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look at any of the posters on the film, that's all it's about. You know, it says here, look, witness the resurrection of Mickey Rourke in Darren Aronofsky's deeply affecting film. That's all the taglines are about, or about Mickey Rourke's coming back. Yeah, and I think it's a hell of a comeback, but then, you know, after a comeback, you're supposed to keep putting out um, interesting things. Yeah, can you really call it a comeback if they don't do anything afterwards? Right, can you... I I don't think it is then, is it? Not necessarily, but, you know, we that doesn't mean we're not grateful for this great performance and great film that, you know, we are given because of this sort of comeback. I mean, this is a guy who is, you know, just for money doing films like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Band. Like, you want to talk about, like, a branding in films. He has an interesting, very flawed career, and I don't know, I hope he gets a starring role once again, but we'll see. Hopefully, I don't know, he's getting kind of old now as well. That's the other issue that comes up, you know, once these kind of actors move on past their age. Uh, let's see, how old is Mickey Rourke? I'll make him now... Born in 52. Yeah, so what's that, in his 60s? Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's about done then. Yeah, I mean, at least with that, uh, there might be some kind of old man rule for him somewhere along the line, but I don't know, I have a hard time imagining that. Like we said, you know, he did... His acting is mostly a lot of the same kind of gruff character because he's got the voice for that too as well so i have a hard time imagining any kind of other role i don't know i guess that's bad on us because we're kind of typecasting at the same time talking about it i really love the way that the music's used uh, he has quiet riot as his film song bang your head so mm-hmm. that's always kind of fun and it feels very 80s bang your head yeah i love that song yeah and then he's got a sweet child of mine coming in at the end one I think even more to go on that is to say is that uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote the end song for the film. And it's beautiful, well, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, everything Bruce Springsteen does is beautiful. You know. What a weird love- thing, though, for him to write the... I, think, I guess he's good friends with Mickey Rourke is what the deal is. I think that's what happened. Like, Mickey contacted him to do something for the film, and he did, which is really cool. And it's a great song, you know, I love hearing that. Uh, I'm excited as well, because I'm just a huge Bruce Springsteen fan in general. I know that Netflix has his uh, Broadway bit that he's been doing for the past year or two coming later on this month. Oh, really? You know about that. No, yeah. that sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah, Springsteen on Broadway. I saw a trailer for it where he basically kind of sits down with his acoustic setup and everything and kind of talks about his life, you know, to the audience in between songs and everything. So, a um, bit of him. Bruce Springsteen podcast coming later this month. <laughs> We certainly could talk about that. We'll see. Oh, uh, another <laughs> note on uh, Sweet Child of Mine. that um, They actually licensed it for free for the film, which is pretty oh. unusual because the budget was so low. Right, that is interesting. I mean, especially with... I would expect a band, especially like Guns N' Roses, to never license anything for free. Yeah, you know, so... They're not, they're not exactly the most uh, giving kind of people. <laughs> and I feel like it's interesting because you look at like those bands, like other than Springsteen, they kind of had the same career path as a Mickey Rourke, you know, big in the 80s and then nothing in the 90s. Yeah, just kind of completely burn out, especially someone like uh, Guns N' Roses there. Right. Yeah, they, they burned out hard. They had, like, the decade of Chinese democracy, and then eventually we got it, and it was like, what the fuck have you been doing? 
Yeah, I remember they were, they were building that up for a long time, and it was just, what is this? Yeah. It was going to be, like, <laughs> yeah. the most incredible album, you know, it's going, it, I mean, it's fine. It, it's not bad, it's just fine. It certainly did not live up to the hype. That's, yeah, definitely. I guess that no. that came out the same year as The Wrestler, so you kind of have that did weird tie-in, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. We didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say outside of probably Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses is n- not super great. I don't know. I remember liking them a lot as a teenager, but I've my, my taste as other things have, have expanded. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. I think it's good for our taste to expand and to like different things. Like, God forbid, I love the same things now I did as a teenager. No, that would be boring. Right. Why even live past 20? Yeah. If you're not going to change. Yeah, I mean, change is inevitable. I mean, we'll always like the things that we had when we were when we felt like we were at the height of our life. But um, yeah, I don't I don't feel like a band like Guns N' Roses could, or Mickey or an actor like Mickey Rourke could get popular now. I feel like there's too no. many barriers now. Well, yeah, think about it, especially considering what the the path of the '80s was as well. You know, that's when we were really huge into these jacked up dudes. You know, that's when Stallone and Schwarzenegger dominated everything. You know, I mean, yeah, now we're more into, like, natural aesthetics, like, at least, like, for men, just, you know, like, a straight aesthetic, not overly bulky, but, you know, kind of built, but then with women, we're also more natural. Mm-hmm. It's a good a, thing. A little bit more, like, not incredibly natural still, I'd say, which is uh, unfortunate. We'll get there eventually, hopefully. Yeah, not at the movies yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. All right, well, do we have any other last thoughts on The Wrestler, this uh, Aronofsky film, 10 years now gone by? I guess I should mention that last year's uh, Mother was one of my favorite films of the year, that I, I actually have a lot of bias toward Aronofsky, and he's one of my favorite working directors. Mm-hmm. A lot of people seem it's a very love-or-hate kind of director with Aronofsky. His track record is, at least among his fans, very high, but everywhere else people you know don't want to acknowledge him especially i saw that a lot with mother like a lot of people dismiss mother for being too simplistic and you know like banging you on the head with its theme it's like you get it it's it's religious and it's the religious allegory it's so funny because i found i didn't i didn't completely get that the first time like my first perspective <laughs> of it was it was about the artist and the way that once you release your work into the world the people will destroy it and possibly destroy you that it's no longer owned by the artist. But then I, I talked to other artists about it, and they were like, yeah, I, I, that was my takeaway too, so I'm not alone. But I think I, it has I, enough depth for both. Certainly, I guess it changes with your perspective, but I guess the you know other people would argue, well, isn't God an artist? Aren't we his paintings and his portraits? I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. I mean, Aronofsky basically came out. I wish he didn't, but he came out and said, "This is the meaning of the film." Yeah, it's biblical, and I was like, "God damn it!" That's always uh, a little frustrating. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I prefer that over the the David Lynch method, where no, I'm not going to tell you anything about the movie, but you know, certainly some middle ground of, you know, not giving it a strict definition but not leaving us completely in the dark either but you listen to david lynch being interviewed people ask him like was this your interpretation he'll just be like no he, he's not going Maybe to give he, you any bait he won't even say no right like he'll just start telling him like oh, you know i'm not gonna say one way or the other yeah right that's the perfect thing to do and i wish uh, you know if he had said that with mother i feel like it could have had a bigger cult following i felt like it deserved one mm-hmm. oh i've seen people you know i've got some other big aronofsky fan friends and 
they also really love Mother. It was one of their favorites last year. So yeah, I think it was my second favorite after Phantom Thread. But then when I got up out of the theater, the woman behind me, you know, she was an elderly lady. She yelled, "What the hell did I just watch?" And <laughs> well, I mean, when they've got a scene of you know a group of people eating a fetus, yeah. I mean, it was three older ladies, so they must have thought they were going out to a film about motherhood. Is what what I took away. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they got quite the surprise in, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it was fantastic. That That's one of my favorite theater experiences, was listening to their reaction as they threw the baby around the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that would definitely elicit some entertainment, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, other than that, I'd, I don't have a lot else left on this. No, I guess the thing is that, you know, The Wrestler is a very simple but very well done film. You know, there's, I think, only so much to say about it. I think it's better just to go see it. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen it yet, go check it out for sure. It's very enjoyable, very good, and I think it could be potentially some people's favorites in some manner, especially people who connect with the material. Next week was Stanley Kubrick's epic, Barry Lyndon. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Tell me, friend, can you ask for anything more? Tell me, can you ask for anything more? These things that have comforted me, I drive away. This place that is my home, I cannot stay. My only faith's in the broken bones and bruises I display.